0: everybody welcome to are live i'm mark tier the founder of black spectacles and today's episode features mike newman answering questions from our audience some of the questions that mike discusses include how the different exams bleed into each other um, how to handle the architecture history questions that are scattered throughout the exams and the differences between some of the key structural formulas now before we get started if you'd like to attend our next are live broadcast Visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register. And during the broadcast, you'll have a chance to ask questions and share your answers with Mike. And if you don't know Mike, he is an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio, and he is the instructor for Black Spectacles' online AIA-ARE prep curriculum. If you haven't already checked out our AIA-ARE prep curriculum, head over to blackspectacles.com to watch any of the free tutorials from the courses. And today, we have two very special Black Spectacles promo codes to share. So make sure you stick around until the end of today's episode. But first, let's hand it over to Mike.
1: Hello everybody. Uh, we got kind of a random array of uh, questions um, and we'll go through them just one by one and I'll try to treat them just as sort of uh, both specific but also talk a little generally about the, the, the issues uh, surrounding these, these topics. Um, a couple of the things are a little on the complicated or open-ended um, side. Uh, So I'm going to talk about them in a way that I think uh, fits to the exam, but then we'll try to provide some links uh, later on that uh, you can link to sort of more specific information um, that's a little hard to do in this kind of context. Um, So I say let's just dive right in. There we go. Okay. Uh, The first question uh, that came through was, uh, could you talk a little bit about panel points for joists and trusses? Um, So panel points are... Uh, kind of an interesting um, uh, concept because, uh, well, trusses are an interesting concept, right? If you have a truss, uh, the the gist of the idea, sorry, this is the world's worst drawing of a truss, um, but the gist of the idea is that I have... Uh, a structural member, and I'm just going to talk about trusses in terms of uh, beams for now. I find that when you're talking about these topics, it's easier to think about it in in beam form than than getting into all the other complications, and we can talk about it more generally that way. Um, uh, So the whole point of any sort of uh, type of beam really is span, and to get span, what we really want is depth. Um, That's what you're really looking for when you're trying to get span. That's how you get stiffness. That's how you get... the the capacity to span, uh, longer distances. Uh, And so while uh, uh, thinner, less depth material can span pretty far, uh, depending on if it's steel or if it's certain kinds of wood, um, the the game is always, can I get more depth uh, compared to the amount of weight of steel or compared to the amount of uh, like how big a tree would I need, et cetera, to get, to get it to have more depth. And so the truss is the way that, that you get that, and the trusses can span uh, anywhere from like a floor truss uh, for uh, like a wood frame house, you might use a floor truss made out of 2x4s, um, where each of the members is made out of a 2x4, and that might span anywhere from say 18 feet to 26 feet or, or 30 feet even. Um, all the way up to really giant steel trusses that, uh, or concrete trusses that, that can span hundreds of feet. Um, so the, the idea of the truss is a very uh, flexible, used in all kinds of different uh, settings. Um, but the gist of it is I'm looking for as much depth as I can get uh, for the amount of material that we're using. And it's broken up into these triangles, uh, because the whole point of the truss is that the triangles are the most solid of the shapes, um, and uh, this, um, the, the triangle can't be broken down. Um, so as, a, uh, as each piece tries to be sort of pushed over, the triangular shape can't. It can't deform into anything else. The only way that the triangle can, triangle can deform Uh, is by the members, the actual lines that make up the triangle, those can break or deform, but the triangle shape itself can't. So the truss is always a series of triangles. Um, And with the truss, any one of these pieces, the whole point is that any one of these pieces is actually a relatively small member. And so I have small members uh, at the on the inside, in what's referred to as the web members, and small members at the top and the bottom, which are the cord members. Uh, And by putting these all together in these triangular shapes, which can't uh, deflect easily, can't deform easily, uh, allows us to span really pretty impressive distances uh, with very, very small individual members, because they are now made uh, to become one very deep member. Uh, so, when you start to think about that, it, you realize that any one of these moments, as I said, like, let's say the top cord there, that top cord in a wood truss for a, for a house, like I said, could easily be a 2x4 on its side. Uh, well, if I started to put a giant load uh, directly onto that 2x4, that 2x4 is going to start having its own set of problems, right? It's not going to be that the overall truss is now loaded it's the question will be can that 2x4 hold that particular uh, load let's say it was a giant air conditioning unit or something like that Uh, so what I want to do if I can is instead of putting a load just kind of randomly located on the truss I want to put a load right where uh, some of these uh, uh, pieces are So I'm going to have that load, in this case I'm hanging one, maybe here I'm loading from the top and coming right down. And you'll see that I'm pointing directly at where these different members, the web members and the cord members, come together. Those are the panel points. The reason they're called panels is because each of the triangles is called a panel. Uh, And uh, so they're talking about the nodes where these things come together. They'll also be referred to as nodes. Um, But panel point is specific in referencing the place to load. So the point of that is that each of these uh, members as they come together, the web uh, pieces and the cords the top and the bottom cords are connected in um, pin joints. So the forces will always be uh, sort of thrust straight through all of those, uh, those lines of those webs and on the cords. There's no, uh, no moments set up in the individual pieces. That's why they can all uh, function so lightly and so simply. Uh, and so the forces when you, put, when you load directly onto a panel point uh, will create a situation where the force is equally spread through the whole thing and uh, is not then reliant on the strength of the individual member. So that individual top or bottom cord can be a much lighter member because you're, uh, you're not trying to load directly onto that you're loading on the overall member and you know that because you're loading the panel point. You're loading the spot that allows it to spread that that load through the top cord, through the web members that come to that node uh, and then eventually to the bottom cord that that is also connected to those web members and so it spreads that load through the whole system in the way that it's meant to be spread. So that idea of the the panel point is really just uh, um, that the whole point of the truss is to use very, very light members as much as you can, but get a lot of depth out of the overall truss, uh, and therefore making sure that you don't accidentally load that truss in a way where the individual tiny member breaks, therefore making the whole big member not function. You don't want the whole truss to fail because you put the load for the air conditioner, uh, uh, or not air air compressor or something, uh, onto that wrong uh, part of that of that truss so um, trusses are are incredibly simple idea uh, but you have to use them uh, carefully because that uh, if if you load them in incorrectly they will uh, fail dramatically um, now obviously there's a lot of different versions of trusses there's sloping trusses uh, there's you know scissor trusses there's a whole series of different uh, uh, types of trusses there's a lot of uh, online material showing you different examples. Um, The concept holds true no matter what. You're always loading at the point where those loads can be spread to the other members and not where any one individual uh, portion is taking the whole load. Um, One little uh, caveat to all of this, uh, this is sort of what I always refer to as the uh, architect's truss, um, is the idea of the Virndil truss, which I'm gonna draw another terrible truss here. Virindil truss looks like this. Um, I'm sure you've seen it, that those are supposed to be straight lines and perpendicular lines. Um, uh, the Virendil truss uh, is not a truss, but it's called a truss for some historical reason that I have no idea why. Um, e- in this case, each of these uh, nodes is actually a moment connection, uh, and the um, diagonal uh, pieces in the triangles are gone, which is why it's not actually a truss. The reason I mention it is that you still call these uh, panel points, um, and there's still a reason why you might want to load on those direct panel points, uh, having to do with spreading the, the overall load. Um, but the main reason I mention it is that whenever you talk about trusses, the Veer truss is one of those weird ones that has a very specific name, uh, and therefore you can often get a question about it. It's worth kind of just knowing what it is, but also knowing that it's not a real truss. right? Um, pretty much all the other trusses, you'll still follow all of the, the same basic, whether the top cord and the bottom cord are parallel. Uh, doesn't really matter as long as there are triangles, as long as the overall system is made out of uh, uh, hinge uh, pin joints, uh, and as long as um, the loading is done on the panel points, that's all still uh, considered a truss no matter what the shape is. Okay, um, this is another structural one, um, and this one and the next one I'm going to talk about pretty generally. uh, And then, as I said earlier, we'll have a a link uh, to get a little more specific information on. Um, And there's a couple of reasons why I'm going to talk about these generally, but um, load reductions and the codes. Um, The thing about load reductions, the term load reductions, is it actually has a huge number of meanings. Uh, there are many ways that 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 term will show up um, in code material and also uh, on the exam, Uh, some of which are just sort of uh, anecdotal or just sort of ways of describing something. You're talking about there's a load and you're reducing the load, and so it comes across sounding like a load reduction. Um, Other ways are specific things you're allowed to uh, reduce the Um, the load demand for uh, when you're doing a set of calculations. Uh, And that uh, will come for a number of different reasons. Um, Before I talk about that for a second though, let me just say that there are a couple different ways that you can think about this. So load reductions can happen uh, because of the type of load it is. So for example, snow loads or wind loads are sometimes treated differently from other loads, seismic loads. Um, It can happen Uh, You can get a reduction in the required load um, uh, uh, because of the location of the member that you're um, trying to understand. Uh, So we'll talk about that in a second, but like the specifics of that particular spot on the structure may be such that uh, you are allowed to uh, not consider the full expected load um, because it's just not likely to happen. Um, And uh, then the other uh, sort of factor in all of this is uh, going to be the material of the structural system and the pattern that that structural uh, system is uh, being put together. So for example, you'll have different versions of load reductions for wood structures than you will for steel structures or for concrete structures. And a concrete slab, flat slab, would have a different set of load reduction um, factors uh, than say a one-way joist system in concrete. So the specifics um, of all of those factors will play into the, to the system of load reduction. Um, so a couple of different ways to think about this. Uh, like Some people will say, well, wait, why can we reduce the load at all? Like, Isn't the load the load? Um, but if you actually start thinking about it, you realize, well, actually, no, the loads are really just sort of an idea. Right. Some of the loads are very clear and, and direct. That was, would mostly be the dead loads. And so the dead loads on a structure are the things that are part of the structure that are always going to be there. So if I have a steel beam and a steel joist system with a deck and a, some concrete on top of that, I can actually calculate out what all of that weighs and then that is my dead load. And that means that the structure has to be able to, first of all, carry all the dead load. It has to be able to hold itself up. And then there's the live load, right? And the live load is all the other stuff. It's us, it's the, uh, the people who are walking around, it's the furniture that's movable, it's the uh, snow that arrives, it's the, uh, all of the different things that are changing all the time. Uh, so the dead load, relatively simple and straightforward and actually kind of calculable. Not always. There's some examples where that's I mean, it's harder to do than it sounds. But you can just kind of generally uh, you can generalize into saying that the dead load is relatively easy to, to calculate. Um, but the live loads actually there's a whole series of different uh, live loads um, that are uh, you know all over the place. Um, so where do we get live loads? Well, generally we get live loads from codes where they say, all right, uh, in a, an office setting, we're going to say. That's a 100 PSF, 100 pounds per square foot of live load throughout this structure because of the type of use that structure is. So it's this idea that is given to you that this is a code-generated element. Now, you don't always have to use the code. You can actually do, in most situations, you can do uh, calculations based on you know, reasonable estimations and then provide that to the, uh, to the code officials and they'll accept it or not accept it. But typically you just take those numbers out of the code and they're, they're over the years, you know, reasonable, safe numbers that pretty much will ca- in, encapsulate everything. Every once in a while you get a load that's a live load that's a little higher than, than what's uh, put into that number. But typically the loads are a little bit lower than that. Um, and so it's just a way for us to be able to make decisions. So it's, we need some, some weight, some load, in order to be able to do the calculations. So by doing all these uh, calculations, you suddenly realize, well, really, I'm going to have exactly 100 PSF over the entire surface of the floor area? And, you know, when you really start getting into it, it becomes kind of clear that, well, that's actually kind of unlikely. And so there are ways to start thinking about, well, okay, there's a series of expectations, but then the particular elements, you can start to reduce the the robustness of those uh, particular structural elements, like, say, a girder or something, uh, because you know that the likelihood of it being fully loaded all the time is just so unlikely. so that's one reason why you're allowed to do certain kinds of load reductions in certain kinds of settings. Uh, another reason that you're uh, often allowed to do load reduction is the idea of, if you, if you think about um, uh, sort of difference between a tributary area and uh, a sort of, the, it's referred to as the area of influence. Um, so for example, if I have a, a girder, and a girder, uh, and I have a series of beams, and then there's flooring on top of those beams. If I was looking at this particular uh, this particular girder, and I was looking at the tributary area, well, I would go halfway, right? I'd have draw a line halfway and halfway, and this area would be the area uh, that would be considered the tributary area for calculating the size of that. But in fact, uh, there's, you know, another girder over here, and there's another one down there, and these beams are connected and they're all stiffened because they're all working together. Uh, And so there's an influence area that is much larger. It's essentially twice the size because I'm including the influence of this girder and these beams all the way across. And so that's another example of certain kinds of settings that you are sort of allowed that, yes, the loading is done in this very particular way, but we also know that there's a whole series of these things over and over again and they influence each other in their strength capacity uh, and can spread loads in, sort of, uh, in, in ways uh, so we can reduce the, um, uh, the size of the members because we know that they're all going to work together. So that's another sort of way of thinking about it. Um, uh, sometimes there's uh, elements that's different for say multiple story than it is for a single story structure. You'll see those kinds of issues. Um, so there's a whole bunch of these different issues that have to do, um, that the codes will actually write out and you can put into your calculations uh, that, all right, given this position and this setting with this kind of load and uh, with this structural material, uh, we each one of those gets a factor uh, and we can reduce the, the um the size of the member by essentially increasing the allowable um, load that we can put uh, on, on that member. Um, so this is, like I say, there's a lot of parts there, which is why I think uh, showing a link uh, will be more useful um, uh, down the road. But what you the thing to take away is uh, these are um, the ability to say within a given uh, setup, it has to do either with the material and the layout, or it has to do with the type of loading, like say snow versus wind versus seismic, something like that, Um, uh, or it has to do with the the material, um, uh, the location itself of the the individual member. Um, All of these different factors can play into the idea of a load reduction and it's built into the codes so that you don't have to make things that are killer robust all the time because it's just sort of a waste of uh, energy and materials. There are a few places where no matter what, you're always doing the full-on thing. And this is actually kind of an important point from from an exam standpoint. Um, If you can totally imagine a question that says, so uh, what load reduction can I use uh, when I'm doing an assembly space? And the answer is none. Uh, If I'm doing an assembly space or um, a high importance um, uh, area, this is usually referred to as uh, um, type A, I believe. Um, uh, so something like a hospital or a police station, or something that really you you absolutely want to withstand a, a hurricane or uh, you know something like that. Um, those areas you're not allowed to use any of the load reductions. Um, so there are places where they're allowed, and there are places where they're not allowed, uh, and Uh, certain things like uh, if you're doing a calculation with seismic loading and you also have to include the wind loading the sort of expectation is well yes one could have a seismic event at exactly the same time that a tornado is going through but really it's kind of unlikely Uh, and so you're allowed to kind of reduce one compared with the other uh, to make sure that the the building is safe but also um, Uh, reducing the load that you're supplying uh, when you're combining these things together. Uh, Another example would be uh, snow and seismic and some other ones like that, same kinds of ideas. So uh, there's a lot of different parts to it. Uh, The gist of it is there's sort of realities of building. The uh, code uh, live load numbers are built on a sort of general simple idea that says this is one size fits all And then in order to deal with that, they provide all these different ways for you to reduce those numbers in a way that's specific to logical ways of reduction so you're not making anything unsafe. A little complicated, it's actually a very simple idea, but um, all you really need to know is the simple part, but you should understand some of those different uh, breakdowns. Let's try the next one. Next one's gonna be kind of similar, Um, ASD versus uh, LFRD. This question is um, essentially about how we uh, calculate the size and the robustness of the structural elements that uh, that we're working on. Um, so, you know, what do we need to have the structure hold together? Um, and at the same time, uh, we're trying to provide a um, kind of a reasonable factor of safety. So it's not just that the structure is going to stand up, but that you know we're providing this extra, extra factor of safety so that you know, if things are built a little off or if uh, over a span of time something rots out or rusts or something, like we have some uh, ability, a little bit of, uh, of extra in there in order to make sure that things stay safe over time. Plus, there's always the issue of how people actually use the building, the space, the structure. Uh, that uh, you know, we build it in one way with one set of codes then you know things change, and people have parties in warehouses or whatever, and there's dancing, and the floor structure is getting a different load altogether. Um, so uh, the, the the question is, well, okay, how do we calculate not only for using knowing the capacity of the of the material, say steel or concrete or something, um, but also how do we calculate this knowing uh, that we have to be um, add this factor safety and be sort of extra careful in order to make things be safe down the road. So uh, the ASD is the allowable stress design, um, is kind of the old school way of thinking about this. Uh, The LFRD, um, the load factor and resistance design, which I always mess up on, but I think I got right this time, load factor and resistance design, um, is kind of the more modern way of thinking about it. And the gist here is uh, that these are both just ways of assembling the calculations. Uh, there's there's no real major difference in, in the outcomes. Um, it's just two different ways of getting to the same idea. So with ASD, with allowable stress design, so any of you went to, uh, had structures, you know, a few years back, you um, probably all know the the steel handbook, Um, and that steel handbook, uh, in the old green one, is the old uh, ASD, Uh, they've now sort of switched it over, uh, the 13th edition of the AISC, I think it's called, Um, uh, is now, has sort of, kind of complicated this question a little bit by changing ASD to sort of match a little more closely with LFRD. So the, the question actually gets really, really complicated when you start getting into all the specifics, but at base root, it's actually very simple. So here's the, here's the deal. Uh, the ASD, the sort of old school version of this, is we have a series of loads. We calculate what those loads are uh, that would be both dead loads and live loads. We add them up, uh, and then we say, okay, we're going to do this out of steel or out of whatever, let's say steel, uh, and... Um, we want to know how how big a member we need, uh, how big a beam we need in order to be able to accommodate this load. But before we actually do that, we're going to add the factor of safety. And so um, there's a bunch of ways that you get to that, but typically what it really boils down to is that you're going to take that load, the dead load and the live load, you're going to multiply it by 1.6, and that 0.6 is the factor of safety. So the ASD says, all right, I figure out all, I get down, figure out all the, you know, get all the numbers, calculate everything all the way out. And then once I've calculated all the way out, I then just multiply it by this big number at the end. And that takes it and makes it a much bigger number. Then we go in and we look at the, the capacity of the steel and we say, all right, this one, uh, you know, does this steel beam meet this, um, this larger um, stress? And so what we're essentially doing is we're, um, uh, we're taking the, there's the actual stress that the capacity of the steel, and then there's the allowable stress. And by having this factor of safety in there, that's how we've included that we've made that difference to what we're what they're going to allow us to use uh, using ASD. And we can then choose a beam that fits that, and there you go, it's all done. We can do that same thing with columns, and we can do with uh, purlins and uh, floor structures, and et cetera, et cetera. It works all the way through. It gets a little more complicated than that. That's why I said don't. this is just sort of the overall piece. But that's how the simple idea is. So you put all those things together, and then we give it a factor of safety, and then we look it up, and we make sure that the beam that we're going to use can uh, not only fulfill the need, but fulfill the need with that factor of safety. LFRD is uh, saying, like they were sort of looking at it, and they were saying, well, wait a minute. Um, uh, we're gonna treat the dead load the same as the live load. You know, here's a situation where the dead load, we know really well what's gonna happen with the dead load, right? I mean, it's, there's a set, you know, the the steel isn't gonna change weight, the concrete isn't gonna be different, you know, 10 years from now as it is uh, right now. Like, we know what the load is on that. So we don't really need to be so dramatic about Oh, we're just gonna multiply that by 1.6. But the live load, now the live load has some serious question mark to it, so that probably does make sense to have that big uh, factor of safety on it. So um, the, uh, if the dead load um, has a factor of safety of uh, 1.2 and then the live load has a factor of safety of the 1.6, uh, you can see that very quickly uh, that's going to be a different um, uh, allowable stress than the ASD was giving us, which was multiplying everything by that 1.6. So you might say, oh, okay, that means the ASD is always gonna be more conservative than the LFRD. Well, no, because there's another couple of factors that go into the LFRD, which is they then start um, adding factors in uh, that have to do with the kinds of loads that you're uh, factoring in for. So just as an example, uh, if I have a very abrupt load, I would have uh, have to add uh, more. Um, uh, I'd have to add to uh, the the total load more um, because I'd be worried about it just collapsing under a very abrupt loading. Um, so, like uh, uh, a truck suddenly driving on something, or a, a puncture load from a machine, or Uh, You know, any sort of abrupt loading, whereas ductile loading, things that sort of happen over a span of time and have the ability to sort of uh, um, sag before they fail and things like that, um, I can be less concerned about adding uh, more factors of safety on there. So I'm going to have a series of factors of safety that I'm just going to keep adding up and adding up and adding up. Um, So it's going to start lower than the ASD, but it may actually become more conservative depending on the specific of the situation. Um, in a, a fairly simple, standard, straightforward setting, uh, when your factor of safeties are uh, roughly in the kind of one to three ratio, uh, um, it's the LFRD is gonna give you slightly um, uh, smaller members. You're gonna, ha- you're gonna be able to use less material. Um, in uh, other scenarios, you can actually come up with, if for some reason I had a very, very heavy uh, uh, dead load for whatever reason uh, you can actually get a situation um, where the ASD actually is easier to, to deal with um, and and uh, less conservative so there's not a right and a wrong ASD and LFRD um, if you actually go through on most settings uh, you'll have essentially the same structural choices it just might be slightly different um, and I might be able to save a little bit of material uh, especially for steel, um, uh, and be able to reduce the size a bit uh, and therefore save money and save energy and save, you know, sustainability issues and all of that. Um, so if I don't need to, to do it the ASD way, the LFRD, the idea is that, well, we can find a one that's more nuanced and more specific to that particular load by combining all of these different loading factors. Um, and that's the gist of the difference. Uh, they are just ways of calculating the allowable stress and therefore being able to choose uh, a specific uh, uh, loaded member. So, beams, say, for example, it's just a way to choose a beam. Uh, one is a little simpler, one is a little more complicated. Um, the little more complicated one has a little more nuance, it's a little more specific. Um, as I said, the 13th edition of the uh, steel manual has actually kind of made this even more complicated because it's actually started to change the ASD so it's more like the LFRD. I don't really understand why, why that's happening, but whatever. Um, so uh, the, the gist of it is that's all you really need to know. Um, the, any of the questions now, I, I would imagine they still have some leftover questions that use ASD uh, that are still sort of floating in the system. But in general, any of the new questions will be based on the LFRD. Uh, and so the, the, um, uh, the calculations are those calculations. So in other words, you'll see the ones that have all these different factors all tied into it. Um, and the tables are the tables specifically uh, for, the, for the LFRD. Um, but it's essentially the same thing, just these two different ways of approaching it. Uh, like I said, we'll try to uh, find a good, a uh, uh, little bit more descriptive with maybe some samples and, and uh, make a link to that. Alright, uh, this one it, question was, I've had uh, questions that seem pretty off-topic, such as BCDS material choices and uh, SPD distances on the PPP exam. So, uh, programming, planning, and practice exam, uh, having questions on it that uh, really ought to be on the site planning design uh, exam or the uh, um, construction and uh uh, the construction systems. So, uh, any suggestions on how to prepare for this kind of, uh, I used contamination, cross-contamination while preparing for, for one particular exam? Uh, so the simple answer to this is uh, no, because like who knows what the heck they're gonna throw your way. Um, but I will say a couple of sort of general ideas about how to, to think about this. Um, for one, the, the best way of preparing for any of the exams is to take any of the exams. Um, You start to get an idea of what uh, kinds of ways that they ask questions, you get a feel for uh, what they include in their sort of purview. Um, And so taking any of the exams is always a good idea just to get a couple under your belt. Um, But there's also a few that are kind of grouped together. Um, The two that are sort of obviously grouped together and I would definitely consider taking at roughly the same time would be the SPD and the PPP. So site planning and design and the programming planning and practice. Um, In certain ways, the BCDS can also have uh, some of those questions, especially as regards um, uh, geotech geotech information and uh, foundation systems um, and that kind of thing, which definitely applies to SPD and the programming planning and practice. Um, And also the construction documents and services exam can have similar kind of overlap. There's a lot of stuff in uh, construction documents and services about, say, Um, surveys or uh, that kind of information. And the reason is because surveys are a legal part of the process, right? They kind of fall into the construction documents, into the kind of legal understanding of who does what and how these things all fit together and uh, who orders the survey and all of that kind of stuff, which is the owner, by the way. Uh, So there are reasons why those questions fall into those locations, but they also could fall into the site planning or into programming planning and practice. Um, so I always suggest that you actually kind of logically group together a few of those exams and study for them in a, a kind of a larger grouping. So uh, you know, don't think of program planning and practice and site planning design as totally separate entities and I'm going to do one in December and I'm going to do the other one in July you know, instead do them, uh, you know, one in Ju- uh, July and one in August or something, where you spend June kind of thinking about both of them, then you get very specific about one of them, and then once you've taken that one, get specific again. But it allows you to sort of think of them all in these, toge- uh, in these groupings together. Um, the other one that's uh, kind of uh, along those lines, uh, um, you can sometimes find that uh, there are aspects of Um, The building design um, and construction um, systems uh, has a lot of relationship to uh, the building systems um, because they both start putting in these very um, uh, kind of real-world sets of questions that are, are talking about specific buildings and material choices and specific things. So you can easily have a conversation, say, just as an example, about our values under systems because they relate to heating systems and all of that, uh, air conditioning systems, but they also relate to the materiality and the design, uh, the, the detailing, so that relates to the building design and construction. Um, so these things kind of logically fit together, uh, and so there's logic to why one, one exam could have these slippage questions that come from these other topics. So uh, the gist of it is, um, a, don't worry about it too much because it's just gonna happen and there's no way you're gonna be able to judge it and then you're not gonna be able to guess what it's gonna be. Um, but the other is just think about them logically together. Don't don't just randomly jump from one to the next. Have a system for how you're gonna do these things together and then they'll start uh, reinforcing each other. Um, is there a particular one that is like absolutely like the best one to start with and the and the best one to end with or anything like that? Well, I, no, you, know, you just find your own path. Um, The one caveat to that is, and there's a bunch of other material, we have another um, uh, version of this, uh, one of these episodes uh, available to you that talks about the changeover from ARE 4.0 to ARE 5.0, and there are some reasons why you might want to choose certain uh, of the exam topics first because they'll be easier if you get uh, a few of those done, they'll be easier to then translate into 5.0 if for some reason it takes you uh, a while to get through all the exams. you should be able to do, if you're listening to this, you should be able to do the exams under 4.0. You have plenty of time left. Um, but uh, when it comes to change over to 5.0, that might be an issue. So uh, there are two reasons why you might be grouping things together. One is for that transition, and the other is um, that, for example, site design and PPP kind of want to be grouped together. So think about how you make your schedule. Think about how you move through, through the process uh, and um, c- kind of think in that way. Uh, the other thing to say is um, just remember that, like what the point of each of these exams are. So when you talk about site planning, right? The issue is that uh, you kind of what what are all the factors involved in how you would make a set of decisions about where things go. Where do the where does the building go? Where does the patio go? Where does the plaza go? Where does the parking go? Um, and those elements can be Based on all kinds of things. They could be based on uh, zoning issues. They could be based on, uh, uh, you know, can the soil react well to uh, putting a building here? Does the septic system logically go into one location versus another location? And how does that push the building around? Right? Well, those can easily be in a couple of different settings. So you have to kind of think about it in that way and be open to those different possibilities. Otherwise, you get lost in kind of this silo effect of, oh, I'm only thinking about this issue. Well, none of the exams are gonna be like that. They're all gonna be going, uh, crossing across a bunch of different exam lo- exam lines. Um, so I think I managed to not answer that question pretty well. I'm gonna move on. Okay, uh, this one is another kind of similar question um, regarding the random architecture and planning history questions. Is there any suggestion on uh, how to deal with those? Like what, what do you study and what do you focus on? Um, my suggestion on the history and the planning history questions, architecture history and planning history questions, um, is that you just get some very simple, straightforward, uh, uh, you know, you, you probably have one sitting around from an architecture history class, uh, but just a simple textbook. Um, uh, there's a, a bunch of uh, any of the, the sources, um, the ballast and the Kaplan's and, and those sorts of things, have a lot of sort of very simple and straightforward sources um, we have some on some of our uh, uh, videos um, that talk about these these issues. Um, the, that what you want to to figure out is like they're not going to ask you general questions about architecture history or planning history uh, that are just things that that you would need to have like have to know, right? They're going to ask you questions that are specific to the exam topic. So, like, nobody cares um, if you know, uh, what would be a good example, um, uh, the year that Mies van der Rohe died. You know, like, doesn't matter. But you should know that Mies van der Rohe focused on steel structures. Like, you can very quickly and clearly identify him in a very particular way. So that if there's a history question, in while you're taking the structures exam and the the question includes uh, Mies or includes steel and Mies is one of the answers, well he's sort of iconic and representative of steel. He's probably the answer. right? Uh, If you're talking about concrete it might be uh, Calatrava or Nervi or somebody along those lines. Um, So what you're looking for when you're doing the studying, you don't need to study everything. You're looking for the iconic ones that are easy to ask a question about. They do, they're not trying to figure out if you are potentially an architectural historian. They actually don't care about that. What they do care about is that you have some idea of the kind of these main turning points where specific per people or specific planning concepts uh, happened in order to, uh, that, that those because those were just kind of turning points in how we think of the kind of precedents in architecture. So from a planning standpoint, a couple of the ones that jumped to mind are things like the Garden City movement uh, that came from out of the UK uh, around the turn of the last century, uh, um, the new urbanist stuff that came sort of uh, to fore in the 80s and 90s uh, here in the States and spread around. Um, these are kind of turning point elements that uh, kind of captured a, an imagination. Um, Those are kind of key and important to be able to respond to, but the questions won't be complicated. They shouldn't be, at least. Um, What the questions should be based on is just sort of that you understand that as a precedent, that you understand that this was a a key moment in time where this thing happened. Um, uh, And then there's some kind of deeper historical things, like you should understand the difference between uh, a Renaissance city and a medieval city. Um, right, that there's sort of rant, these patterns that aren't random, that they, they have to do with very specific moments in time. Nobody's really going to ask you, well, what year was you know, uh, uh, Venice laid out, anything like that. But you should understand the relationships of kind of big pictures of how those things go. So I would get one of those textbooks, but don't read it. You know, Just flip through, find the key spots, look for, for names that you recognize, read up a little bit about it, and just kind of move through um, and make sure you understand the key elements that bring you to, uh, the, to these like, turning points. Um, uh, it's hard to think of one in wood, but uh, there's a few different, as I said, Meese. there's a few other uh, steel people, there's a couple of uh, concrete ones, there's uh, some, a series of planning ones. Um, you might have some, some kind of modernist things that we'll talk about, how uh, modernist planning versus uh, uh, traditional planning, um, you know, the, it'll only be ones that really sort of capture a moment in time, uh, and that's what you're really focusing on. So I wouldn't fret about it. The way the history questions got in there is in the old days, there was an actual history exam. It was actually a whole separate exam, and you had to take a whole exam on architecture history. And then I, my guess is that people kept failing it, and so they decided to, uh, uh, to get rid of that, and they just spread the, the questions uh, about through all the other exams. So the, exam, the history questions will be on topic to that exam. So, um, it's like maybe you might have a, like, what would you have in systems? Um, in systems, you might have kind of a, a question about um, people using solar power or something like that, that you know, when did that happen, how did that happen? Um, in structures, as I talked about, people using specific materials. In, uh, in uh, programming, planning, and practice, it might be about kind of what are the precedents. Um, you know, sort of as I said, these different uh, systems for organizing, like uh, medieval versus uh, uh, Renaissance versus modernist. Um, like, how would that play in? What would those precedents be? And why might you choose those in any one situation? So it'll always be specific to that exam, but it, it could be about any of those uh, different people, but it won't be completely random, it won't be um, unknowable. It's, it's something you can actually study for fairly simply. I would spend maybe two days on it and then you're probably good to go. All right, let's move to the next one. On the site planning vignette, um, can the plaza or garden uh, be any crazy shape as long as it is within the required square footage uh, and meets all of the required adjacencies? And then another question, is it possible to put in too many trees to screen wind and views? on the site planning vignette and does the service road have to be in a very particular relationship to the building? Um, on this first part, uh, the, the plaza can in fact be um, essentially any shape. Um, the giant caveat to that though is that if the, if the plaza gets too thin, uh, I'm not sure how the computer reads it. I'm not sure if it reads it less as a, not as a plaza, but as a walkway um, and therefore uh, falls into a different category. So I would try your darndest to make it a reasonable shape of a, of a plaza. Um, there's no reason why you can't be sort of fluid um, with it, but um, it's just hard to know exactly what the, what the parameters are specifically. Like if you get it down to say five feet wide, um, my guess is that the computer looks at that and says, that's not a plaza, that's a, that's a sidewalk. Um, so uh, I would just be careful about that kind of thing but if it's a a z-shape in a you know some way or some kind of something along those lines or big L um, that's all fine as long as you're meeting all those other issues square footages and and the adjacencies and even the square footages you know you have a 10% play which is actually quite a lot Uh, so um, you know I wouldn't be overly concerned about it Um, but you do want to make sure that that it you know, is reasonably close to to the required uh, amounts. Um, The other reason to try to keep it as straightforward as you can is just in general, uh, the simpler your plan is, the easier it's going to be on you while you're doing it. Um, If you can keep it fairly simple and straightforward, uh, you know, a simple rectangle, a simple maybe, you know, L with a small leg or something, um, it's just going to be more straightforward for you while you're doing it, it's easier for your brain to understand that it's there and the scale of it and what can go up next to it. Um, and also, if you have to change something down the road later, the more crazy that plaza is, uh, just, it's just harder to make it uh, work if you have to change one thing. Now I have to like, really think about all the different shapes, possibilities. Whereas if I start with something that's nice and simple and straightforward, if I have to then push it around a little bit and make it a little crazy, that's okay. So that's what I would say about that, is try to keep it as straightforward as you can, but you actually do have quite a bit of uh, flexibility on it. Uh, The second part, is it possible to put in too many trees to screen wind and views? Um, The answer to that is yes and no. Uh, The reason no is no, you can put in as many trees as you want. Um, The reason to say yes is that the more trees you put in, first of all, you're, you're, you're sort of going beyond what you need to do. All you really need to do is just show that you understand the idea that uh, certain kinds of trees, which, think about it, which trees, if you're trying to uh, block uh, wind and, and uh, views, those can't be deciduous trees, those have to be uh, um, coniferous trees, right, because they have to be uh, down low where the where you want to block the view and the wind. Um, so you have to choose the right kind of tree. Um, and, you know, if you're trying to block a, a wind pattern, if you put, say, uh, three trees uh, 15 feet apart from each other, uh, and then uh, two trees set back from those in the, in the void spaces between them, that's, uh, those five trees are gonna block any wind, conceptually, that we wanna get into. Um, uh, so, uh, so what I was saying there is if I do three trees and then I do two more, right, any wind, if the wind is coming this way uh, and I have my plaza or something here, that's fine. You don't need to do 100 trees. And if you do a hundred trees, you're likely to put a tree someplace that causes a problem. You're likely to put a tree in a place you're not allowed to to put it or it's gonna be in, you're gonna have to move the road for some reason that you didn't expect and now you're cutting out a tree. If I put a tree in and then I kill it, it's just like I'm killing a tree that was already there. Um, So don't overdo it, just put in what you need. Uh, Something like I just sketched is more than enough. You could probably just do the three. uh, but you know that's plenty uh, and then does the service road have to be uh, 20 feet perpendicular to the building or can it run parallel um, you know I'm not actually hundred percent sure about this one I do know that the the um, best scenario is that it's perpendicular um, but my guess is is that it can also be um, parallel um, uh, but what I would look for is a specific wording in the code because it could actually be different on different exams um, and that it would have to tell you that it had to be perpendicular in this kind of setting. So uh, if, the, if the, the road has to be coming perpendicular off of, if this is now our building, um, it has to be coming perpendicular, it'll say something in the code uh, requirements. Um, but I do believe you can uh, have it come up uh, uh, parallel, but uh, the perpendicular is definitely the preferred, preferred choice. All right, let's try the next one. Stair and ramp vignettes. Uh, the width of the stair as it relates to the area of area of rescue and the width of the ramp at 180 degree turn versus a 90 degree turn. Um, so the width of the stair um, as it relates to the area of rescue is truly weird. Um, so you're gonna have to read very closely on the uh, code for the uh, stair uh, vignette. Um, so you calculate out the uh, total occupancy load, right? You're sort of looking for how what's the you know how many total people. So we're looking for the occupancy of each floor, um, and then you're going to divide that by however many stairs there are, any exits are, which is either going to be two or three. Um, so I'm going to take that occupancy and I'm going to cut it. Let's say it's I have an occupancy of 320. Well, I'm going to cut that in half, and because uh, I have two stairs, uh, and so now I have uh, 160. So I now have to make sure I go through the numbers and I say, all right, 160, you know, what kind of width do I have? I'm going to go through that whole set of calculations. Um, and often those calculations will end up being, the load will end up being smaller than the minimum width. And so the minimum width will be actually the width that you're using often. Sometimes um, that uh, uh, with minimum width typically is 44 inches. Um, uh, sometimes it'll be up to 48 inches sometimes it'll go up to about 60 inches it's pretty rare that you're going to get a situation on the exam where it would be bigger than 60 inches that's a pretty particular situation Um, you start getting into complications of having to add uh, setter railings Uh, people have told me that they've seen that but it just seems unlikely I don't think it would happen very often it seems very unlikely to me so your range is really between 44 and like you know, 56, 60, somewhere in that range. Um, So imagine you have it as the, it's that you're only required, say, 36, but the minimum is 44, so we say, okay, we bump it up to the 44. And then on the second floor or on the mid floor, uh, I have an area of refuge. Um, There's a little caveat in the code. Um, I don't know if it's always there, but it is in all the examples that I've seen. Um, A little caveat in the code that says, if there is an area of refuge, then the minimum from that point down the stair is 48 inches, and the reasoning on that is that um, in our very high-tech world, the very clever, smartest way we've ever come up with of dealing with somebody uh, in a panic in a uh, in a fire in a wheelchair is they go into the protected stair because uh, the whole stairwell is supposed to be protected in some level. Uh, They go into the protected stair and they wait in the area of refuge until some burly fireman comes in and carries them down the stairs, which seems crazy in its uh, low-techness. But that's as good as we've ever come up with. Uh, So the idea of having it that extra size, that extra width uh, from uh, uh, the area of refuge down is just to give an opportunity for the firefighter to be able to physically carry somebody down while somebody else is going up and down. So it's a strange little caveat and it has a couple of of odd little bits to it. Um, For one example, the handrails, for the minimum width stair, uh, let's say 44 inch, the handrails are allowed to be actually inside that. Um, There's a certain limit to the distance so you don't want to do it too far in, um, but let's say you put them in uh, where they're three inches in, something like that. Um, that gives you a little bit of room for your hand to be able to grab the handrail, and it kind of comes into the space.
0: We do have two questions. Um, are the codes provided in the program tips for the stairway and vignettes, or is that knowledge you need to know going into the exam? That's a, Same thing for stairs and handrails.
1: That's a great question. Um, there are certain things you should just sort of know how to do. You should have some practice. You should have done a stair or two in your lifetime uh, to sort of be able to, to do these uh, uh, vignettes, but um, it's actually the only things they can really test you on are the code that are given in the uh, vignette. Uh, they, the, all of that code will come in the vignette. And the reason for that is, you know, you can't, uh, you know, the Chicago code, for example, has, uh, even though it's now based on international building code, has a different uh, railing height in certain, certain scenarios than uh, other codes do. You, you know, it can't be that, that they would be so specific That you would have to know that Um, so they give you all the information that you have to deal with but you have to read it very carefully to try to understand it because it's worded a little oddly so let me just get back to the thing about the, the handrails being able to be within within the width so that means the handrails the width of the stair is the 44 inches but the handrails are within that on the 48 inch one from the area of refuge down that's actually not true it's actually from handrail to handrail so it's a, uh, uh, you have to be very specifically reading through that. Once you've read it a few times and once you've practiced it, it actually comes through very simply. And it may, that, that particular uh, code item may not be there on the one that you're working with. So you wanna know how that you know practice them, test them out, try to get to know them, but be willing to like, go back in so you know what the code is gonna be before you even start the vignette, but then go read it again anyway because there could very well be uh, something that's a little different and the, they might have a slightly different uh, way that they word it and you want to pick up on those changes. It'll probably be the one that you've, you've practiced on, so it's probably not a big deal. Um, so that's the weirdest thing about that. And then from there, that 48-inch would go all the way down. If your width was, say, 56 inches or, or 60 inches, uh, already because of the calculations then it wouldn't affect it because you're already more than than that 48 inch. Alright now regarding the uh, ramps, the big thing on the ramps is that um, if I have a ramp uh, that's coming uh, and it has a, a minimum width of let's say uh, 48 inches so the, the width across is uh, 48 inches uh, and then I have another, another portion of that ramp uh is going right there and that's also got that same minimum um i can't just have these meet in a straight corner because i actually need to have a five by five space for the turnaround so i get this kind of funky little extra uh, corner built in there Um, and what the exam um, allows because part of the point of the exam is can you figure this stuff out in an economical way what the exam allows you to do is to say, all right, well, that's a little crazy. Uh, why don't we just have it be five feet wide? Sorry about my not straight line. Um, I wonder if I can do, do that again here. Um, there we go. Um, so this is, uh, I'm, I'm wasting space on the extra width of the ramp, um, but I'm also making it much simpler to build elements. Just, you know, that that one corner instead of this first example which had uh, three corners. And those corners are all very expensive for the railings and for all the little knee walls and curbs and everything. Um, So uh, you will often see that people will suggest um, that you do for a 90 degree turn that you do something like like that. Um, If I'm doing a switchback, I lose the advantage. So on a switchback, I'm gonna, have a situation where I'm coming, say, up that ramp and continuing up that way, um, this dimension is going to still be that five feet, um, but the, the width of the ramp can be whatever the minimum is, because there's, I'm not getting that same clean line thing out of that I'm getting here. If I just do the five foot um, fully here, it, it doesn't get me anything. And in fact, it's a little wasteful. Um, so the idea that I'm coming around that ramp and it's, I'm keeping with the minimums uh, on the, the width, but then I'm making sure that I have at least that five-foot dimension there, so I still have that five-foot circle capacity uh, uh, on that landing, that's, that's sort of the difference between doing a 180 versus a 90-degree turn. Now, the caveat to all of this is that... Um, I can't create a situation where, or I shouldn't want to create a situation where I go from a 5 foot width to a, a 48 inch width to a 5 foot width to a 48 inch width um, because it just gets goofy and um, you're, you're, uh, when you're doing egress work it should always be uh, that it is uh, continuous as much as possible. Um, so hopefully that was clear uh, but the idea is that it's different on a 90 degree turn than it is on a 180 degree turn. I think we just ran through all of our questions. Thanks for uh for sending those questions in. Those are really some good ones and like I said we'll put a couple links in for some of that uh some of those structural ones specifically.
0: Okay, John's asking how do you spell the name of that unique trust that you mentioned earlier?
1: Oh god, I knew you were going to ask that. Uh Virandil. I have no idea. Um it starts with a V. Let's see if we can do a quick uh Google saves the day once again. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, it's the, it's sort of a goofy one. It's it, the reason that I mention it at all is because, you know, they always are looking for things they can, that are kind of snappy that they can ask a question about. And a uh, Virendil truss, it's just like, it has a name, right? It's this very specific concept. Um, you should probably know the component parts of trusses like a king post and a, all of those things, but uh, maybe know a few of the key ones, like a how versus a king uh, King truss, um, scissor truss, some of those kinds of things. Um, but you're not really expected to know like all the different names of all the different truss types. But just vierendeel is one of those weird ones that it's just likely to come up. I, I, I remember my. I think this is beyond the statute of limitations on these things, so I think I can say it. When I took the exam, however many gazillion years ago it was, I actually had a question about vierendeel trusses, and I, you know, many people have mentioned it to me. So um, I that's the only reason I mention it. Um, so it won't—they won't put another V named trust <laughs> on in this—they won't try to trick you. It's just whether you would recognize it or not.
0: Okay. Um, so, so with that, we'll we'll go ahead and close up today's uh, today's session. Um, and um, actually, we did get one more question. So <laughs> one
1: slid in. Okay.
0: Yeah, I'll kind of second here. Uh, social systems is a discrete topic, straightforward to study for. I hear CES is similar, not so broad. Others are very wide ranging. Maybe it's better to take these early on before others. Is um, is Ben's question?
1: So that's a good question. Um, it, there there really is no right answer um, to any of this. I I think it's important that you come up with a strategy. Uh, and I, I've talked a little bit about a couple strategies, and I'll mention a couple more. Uh, what you, your suggestion is actually uh, makes sense to me. Um, but just come up with a strategy that so that you kind of know what's coming. You don't want to be sitting there going, oh, what am I going to take next? Um, You know, you just want to have an idea and so then lay out your strategy and just just do it Um, By far the best way you can study for the exams by taking the exams Um, And yes, I know you can accidentally, you know You can take an exam before you're really ready and not pass But you know, you'll be ready to take it the next time and it'll be much better. You'll be much better at it So I wouldn't get overly fretting about it Um, Previously what I would always say is that the best ones to do first um, that The absolute first one is you do the one that you are um, most worried about, um, excuse me, the absolute first one, you do the one that you're most, you most think you're going to be uh, uh, good at. And that way you kind of go in, you start one off, you get, get one under your belt that you feel comfortable in, you learn like where you park and you learn where you put your coat and, and it's on one that you're not super worked up over. Um, so you start with that one, and then the second one you do is the one that you're most worried about, which for most people is structures. structures. Um, and then you get that one out of the way, now that you've sort of gone through one, you have an idea of how it's going to work. Um, and the advantage of that is that uh, you have to wait a period of time before you can retake the exam. And that way, it, you, you know, that period of time can go by while you're taking other exams. Now recently they've changed it. It used to be you had to wait at least six months. Um, It's now down to, um, uh, I I think it's either two months or 60 days or something something like that. Um, So it's a much shorter period of time. So that doesn't really matter as much, but it's still not a bad way to approach it where you say, okay, I'm gonna start with the easy one and then I'm gonna dive in on the hard ones just to kind of get the full range and so you feel comfortable. Having said that, one of the things I remember, it's kind of funny to say now, I actually teach systems um, but uh, when I was taking the exam, I didn't know anything about systems. Uh, And I went into that exam, I was totally unprepared and I thought, oh my God, this is gonna be a disaster. I hadn't had a chance really to study for it. It It's like, oh, this is gonna be terrible. And I passed it, you know, and then I later, you know, got kind of interested and started studying up on it and got pretty good at it. But like I passed it before I knew really anything about it. Like you'll be surprised, even ones you think are hard, you may do just fine on um, and occasionally what'll happen is you'll get a, uh, an exam of something that you are totally killer knowledgeable on and you'll get a bunch of random questions that you just don't happen to know and you, you won't pass it like so you can don't overly fret about it come up with a strategy that works and then kind of move with it i do like the one that you suggested though that does actually make some sense those kind of more standalone ones kind of get those out of the way and then group the other ones that kind of uh, dovetails with what i was saying earlier
0: Um, So we have a couple other ones here. Michael and Ed are both asking about the construction documents uh, exam. Michael is asking, uh, or really sort of for confirmation that he should focus on studying the uh, A101, B101, and B201. And then Ed is wondering A201, yeah. Ed is wondering if, um, if if there's a specific exam that makes sense to combine with CDNS.
1: Yeah, um, if I was going to do CDNS in, together with some other ones, I would do it with site planning and design and um, programming planning and practice. Um, and part of the reason for that is uh, due to the transition to 5.0, um, uh, There's just a logic to it, um, but it does. It is kind of standalone. There, there are parts of CDNS that can show up on any of the exams, and there, are, you know, any of the exams can show up on CDNS because. The um, construction documents and services talks about the, the legal structure around stuff. So, that can be implicated in material questions. It can be implicated in design questions. It can be implicated in you know, all kinds of different ways. It, there's, the CDNS will also talk about um, like how you structure an office or how you structure a set of documents. Um, so, if I'm talking about how I structure a set of documents, well, clearly that's going to be similar in conversation to building design and construction systems. Um, so there are similarities through a lot of these different ones, um, but uh, to, just to kind of get back to the, the initial question that you asked, um, which ones? What, what would I focus on? I would absolutely focus on the um, A101 uh, owner contractor contract, the B101 owner architect contract, and then the A201 general conditions. Um, Those are the three documents that are like by far the most meaningful that most questions will come from Um, And you should have an sort of a general gist of an idea about what the other contracts are Um, You don't have to like memorize any of them or anything like that, but you should have a gist of how those things um, work, so uh, CMs are for construction managers, Cs are for consultants uh, uh, Gs are like payouts and things like that. You should sort of have an idea of where those other ones are, Um, but the the ones that I would actually read through and really try to get to know are the A101, the B101, and the A201. Now, one of the things you will find, I'll just say very quickly, uh, is that if you start at the beginning and start reading, you will be asleep by page two, um, and you will have read through the whole thing and not taken anything in. Find a way to read it like ask yourself some questions and then find the answers in the in the contract. Or um, there's a there's a couple of great things on the AIA website. There's a commentary um, which takes it and breaks down some uh, only a few of them for some reason, but it will break down the contract into individual lines. And then there's a commentary with each line. So like this says this, but what it means is this. Um, and like it, find those ways where you're not just like. Absorbing the words, but not the understanding you've got to find a way to actually read it for real Uh, It's much harder to do than it sounds Um, But once you do that they actually make really they make interesting sense and you will understand Your role in all of this world much much better the better you understand those contracts I can't tell you how great it is uh, to to understand what those contracts say because it affects like how long you spend on things, uh, you know, what you say to who, uh, you know, who, who answers a question in the client meeting. You know, all of those things actually get answered in those contracts, and they're really useful.
0: Uh, ben is asking if you agree that it's good to group the structural systems exam with the building design and construction uh,
1: There is a lot of overlap. Um, I, I think that's not a bad choice. Um, but like I say, whatever strategy you come up with, there's going to be pluses and minuses to any of them um but I, but that is a that there's a logic to that i would agree all
0: right well thanks mike uh, and thanks to all of you who've tuned in if you'd like to attend our next ARE live broadcast visit blackspectacles.com/podcast to register to attend you'll have a chance to ask questions and share your answers with mike for live feedback during that broadcast and to learn more about our AIA ARE prep curriculum go to blackspectacles.com we'll also put a link in the show notes and for those of you who want to get busy preparing for the ARE You can use a 15% coupon off the first charge of any AIA-ARE prep membership with code 52715WEBINAR, which will expire on June 15th. And of course, if you're already an AIA member, you can visit AIA.org slash Prep to get a 30% discount for the entire duration of your AIA-ARE prep membership, not just the first charge. Um, This also expires on June 15th. And finally, please hop over to iTunes right now and rate our podcast to let us know what you think and share any suggestions that you may have. I promise we'll read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for listening.